This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com, The Big Change Program with Josh Lajani, and Wellstart Health. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a conscious and compassionate life. All right, let's get right to today's episode. You know, there are days when... To myself, I grumble about having to do this podcast, you know, when there's a lot of editing to be done, when I have to turn my typo notes into coherent show notes, when my audio sounds terrible and I have no idea why. And then there are days like this when I get to share with you an interview with one of my action heroes. And you'll hear during the interview, I was kind of nervous and fanboyish and just about trembling with the excitement and privilege of interviewing Carl Safina. Carl is the author of a bunch of really important and beautiful books, most recently, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. I first heard it on Audible a couple of years ago. Uh, Carl was the reader as well as the author, and I was utterly mesmerized and transformed by the listening. And I think that it was one of the sneaky factors that pushed me somewhat against my better judgment into an alliance with the animal welfare camp of the plant-based movement. I was really kicking and screaming to just talk about health. The book, Beyond Words, describes Carl Safina's encounters with three fascinating and endangered animal populations, the elephants of East Africa, the wolves of Yellowstone, and the orcas of the Pacific Northwest, and the humans who have devoted their lives to studying, documenting, understanding, and protecting these magnificent creatures. The central idea of Beyond Words is something that I did not realize was so controversial in scientific circles. It seems fairly straightforward to me, and that is that animals have thoughts and feelings and are in every way the moral equals of human beings. You know, this is not going to surprise any dog owner, but it flies in the face of 200 years of reductionist materialistic science that relegates animals to it status. They're basically interchangeable units without cognition or consciousness. And that viewpoint is what allows us to commit atrocities, such as elephant poaching for tusks, wolf killing for sport, and turning the ocean into a bad neighborhood unable to sustain life. I'm so excited to bring this interview to you and so without further ado, Carl Safina, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. So I wanted to talk with you about your 2015 book, Beyond Words. And huh? it's, it's uh, essentially about, it's about a lot of things, but um, sort of the, the, the broad plot line is about three different, very different types of animals and how they're doing. Uh, out in the wild and interacting with humans, and, and um, some, I'm, I'm I'm curious, just from a from a big picture perspective, what were you trying to understand or convey to your fellow humans when you set out to write the book before you actually got into the the experiences and the reporting? Yeah, I wanted to show who we are in the world with who besides human beings, what other beings we are here with. And um, most people are really very unfamiliar with other animals and what, how they live, what they, what they think about, what they feel, what their lives are like. They may know the names of species. They may hear something about 
their conservation status or where where you might go to see them but um they don't really they don't really understand a lot about their lives because it takes a long time to you know to do that and why why is that important to us because i and i'll just say that that after um i i first didn't read it i listened to it on audible and uh, it was, you know, I'm glad I did because it was kind of a, uh, an enforced slower experience. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't cheat again. And I felt like at the end of listening to it, and this was about two years ago, I was changed. And in preparing for uh, this conversation, I, I, I reread it, and, and there were a lot of things that I hadn't remembered. And I did feel changed in some, you know, really interesting ways. I'm wondering what... Well, I think what you, you were answered, hoping you just you just answered your own question, really. In a way, is um, <laughs> that's why it's important to know these things because there's uh, there's a lot going on in the world um, that if we understood it, we would be different, and we would think different, we would act different, we would value things differently, and and the main reason that's important unfortunately is because we're destroying so much of the of the world so um yeah that's the answer i think right so near near the beginning of the book you you talk about um that you you started out by saying how how are they like us and what can they teach us about ourselves meaning the animals and you say, what I don't see coming is I have the question almost exactly backwards. Could you explain right. what you mean by that? Well, um, some people study animals hoping that they will give us insight into ourselves and into the human mind and the human condition. And what what we really need to know is about their minds and their condition. It's not always about us. Not everything in the world has value or is or or is fascinating, um, depending on us. These these creatures are here. They have as much of a claim to existence as we do. And just instead of instead of asking what can we learn about ourselves from them it's the the more interesting question is what can we learn about them mm-hmm. yeah, and i'm thinking i'm thinking of the uh, the anecdote when you were talking about having the wolf sort of look and you said it didn't actually look through me it just you know sort of um uh, looked past me like i wasn't that interesting right like uh, yeah i was like something that wasn't really food know. Right. Some people say, oh, the, you know, the wolf looked right through me as though, you know, there again, I'm the most important thing. And the, the wolf is so fascinated about me. And, uh, you know, it's seeing my soul and all these kinds of things. But the, the feeling I had was it really wasn't interested in me. I, I just I didn't mean anything to that wolf. And, um, you know, I think that's appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's it's uh, I'm reminded of a, of a song by Greg Brown where he's talking about, you know, like the chickens. Uh, I think he's referring to a Neruda poem, actually, that the chickens look at us like like we're not that important. He says, you know, mm-hmm. and they do mm-hmm. and we aren't, but it's hard to take from a damn chicken. Yeah, right, um, right. It, 
it can be it can feel i guess there's a way in which humans can feel sort of you know insulted by the fact that we're not the the measure of all things well that's one of the main problems with us is uh you know we have we have these incredible egos with this incredible insecurity that goes along with it and um we we are capable of being insulted by the way the world is that's a little bit that's a little bit psychotic really <laughs> right and, and and one one of the things that struck me is is about in, in the descriptions of all these different animals who are highly social highly intelligent um is how unpsychotic they are up to the point where they can't take us anymore yeah um Yes, that's true. I mean, the, one of the one of the things about non-humans is that they uh, they're very sane. Um, most of the things that we see in ourselves, we can see some of that in other animals. Almost everything, but the things that I don't see in other animals are some of the least flattering things about ourselves. Things like um, self-loathing and depression and being suicidal um, and these, uh, you know, these tremendous psychological illnesses. Uh, other animals seem to be much better adjusted to life and the world than we are. Hmm. Unless humans abuse them. That's, I think, the only time you see animals that seem depressed is basically when humans are imprisoning them. Right. Well, you have, you have the rest a... of the time animals are, animals are great pragmatists. They're, they're very rational beings. They, they only believe what there is evidence for. And, um, you know, they don't have, they don't kill each other over, over ideologies or, um, or you believe in one kind of God. I believe in another kind of God. Now I will kill you. You know, that. Those kinds of things only humans do. Right. You, you, you have a line that you say, you know, I think you're talking about the wolves, like they know what their lives are about. And yeah. mm -hmm. it, ju it just struck me that, you know, like I, I can read this and feel superior to the, you know, to the, the hunting interests and the whaling interests and the, uh, but, but I can't feel superior <laughs> to animals who know what their lives are about. Because I, I was thinking about it, like, I really don't know what my life is about. Uh-huh. Um, well, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I'd like to... to um, the other thing that I just wanted to get into before we speak about the, the, the extraordinary stro stories of the animals themselves is I, I was actually having trouble when I was listening to the book, hearing you talk about sort of the way modern science tries to look at animals and explain them in a very reductionist, silly way. And it, and I didn't know your work before that. So I had no, um, I had no basis for, uh, for judgment, but it felt like you're sort of creating a straw man out of science. Then when I, when I was reading through the footnotes of, of this book, I realized if anything, you were being kind. And it was really hard for me to to uh, to accept that that scientists who study animals can be so clueless about animals. Can you talk a little bit about what what you discovered and what the 
the state of the art is or the, or the, yeah, you know, sure. sort of the mainstream around yeah, understanding I, animals? Yeah, yeah. Let, let me, let me, um, let me walk that back a little before I take it forward. And, and that, that is to say, for one thing, I am a scientist. I have a PhD in ecology and I've studied seabirds and written articles in science journals, peer reviewed journals, quite a lot of articles about, um, about that kind of research. Secondly, I think that science is the greatest thing that the human mind has ever created because it's really the only it's the only endeavor that is designed to try to find out what's really going on and it's the only thing that people do where built into the process you can say oops i got that wrong now now i believe something different based on the evidence and where the standard of evidence is it it exists everyone can see it and um you have to believe what what the evidence shows, regardless of whether you like the evidence, whether you wish it wasn't happening, um, you know, things like climate change, let's say, uh, you know, the evidence is that people are changing the climate. I wish it wasn't happening, but I have to believe it because the evidence shows me that it, it's, it's going on, whether I like it or not. So science is, is very powerful and, um, you know, I, as a scientist, hold it in very high esteem. The only problem is that science is done by people, and people are very imperfect. So while there is a lot of very good and very insightful science about other animals, about non-humans, there is also some ridiculous science about non-humans. And the the main sort of the main fork in that road is that there are a lot of people who study animals in the wild and they are really tuned into them and what's going on in the bigger picture. And I think that they have found out and learned a tremendous amount just for one well-known example is how Jane Goodall, one of the first people who went to study uh, a, a species where it lives doing what it's supposed to be doing. She, she came under just withering criticism from um, old male colleagues who had never been in the field and didn't know what she was seeing and really did not have a good reason to be critical of her and turned out to be quite wrong. So the field people, in my experience, they tend to be, very, very widely knowledgeable and very insightful because of it. They have they have perspective, they have the context, they get it. Then there are um, a bunch of other people who are, they study animals in very artificial captive situations. And some of those are good and insightful and you can learn some important things and, and others are just totally absurd. And um, in addition to being absurd, they come out with uh, very, very strange impressions about what animals do and don't do and can and cannot do. Right. So you, you, you make the argument that we, we share almost all of our evolutionary equipment with other species. Right. Well, we do. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't make the argument. It's, that's just simply a fact. We, we simply do. <laughs> Right, but but you you, uh, you 
you marshal that fact to say, like, why would it be crazy to think that dogs or elephants or wolves can feel the things that we would consider as human emotions, right? Like, I, I, I didn't know the literature, so I didn't realize that there was such a taboo on saying, like, the elephant turned to protect its young rather than the elephant turned to interpose itself between its young and the jeep. Like, you're allowed to say the second one, but you're not allowed to infer any kind of motivation. Well, in the way you stated the second one, you implied you implied motivation. The, the way that those people who have this taboo would say it is the, the elephant positioned herself between the baby and the jeep without saying why she did that. Not, mm-hmm. not that she went to get between them, but that she simply, that's where she was, now that's where she is. And that's all you're allowed to say. But that, you know, that is it's just nonsensical to, um, well, science is not supposed to have rules like that. Um, for one thing, you know, you're supposed to believe things based on the evidence. If, if the evidence is that she is protecting her baby, uh, you should be allowed to say that. Now, basically all the field scientists would simply say that because it's obvious. Um, but there, that there is this substantial, although weakening contingent of scientists who would, who would say, no, you're not allowed to do that. When I was um, when I was in college, the the vast majority of people who studied animals studied them in captive settings, and uh, and they did have these rules, and I was taught those rules, and I thought, okay, well, you know, those are the rules. I I think it's I think it's good to start out by not believing that the elephant is trying to protect her baby or that or that she isn't trying to protect her baby let's just see what she does but then when you see what she does then you you ask well why did she do that and then you realize that you know all of the evidence is she protects her baby it she that's how she's responding uh, that's the result in in everything else that she and her entire family do they're very protective. They're very careful. They're very attentive to the baby. Um, and the baby lives instead of getting hit by the Jeep, let's say. So, um, isn't it therefore obvious and inescapable that she protected her baby? What is, what in the world is the, you know, what do we lose by acknowledging something that is so basic? So do you feel you had to change coming out of, of uh, grad school? Uh, that you, you, you had to have experiences that, that shook that, um, that set of rules? Uh, well, I, I, um, I'm not big on rules to begin with. So, <laughs> you know, when I, when I was taught that, I thought, okay, well, I, you know, I, I understand the rationale for it, but... You know, there was always this but, let's just see what seems to be going on kind of a thing. And um, you know, all, all through my life, ever since I was really quite small, I, I was observing wild animals in various contexts um, and, and captive animals. I, as I mentioned in the beginning of the book, um, starting from the time I was seven years old, I used to breed homing pigeons and I was very... Uh, very intimately acquainted with their lives and 
it just before anybody told me what I could and couldn't believe, it just was obvious to me that their lives had many parallels with ours, that they, they paired up. They sometimes argued, sometimes the different couples uh, fought over territory or shoved each other away from the food or got along well, and they took good care of their babies and their lives revolved around raising their babies. And, you know, like right across the yard, we lived in our apartment building um, where we were living in stacks of boxes, just like the pigeons in the coop were living in stacks of boxes. And there were, the, the parallels were pretty clear, pretty obvious. And even after being told about how wrong I was and reevaluating all of that, I, I decided I don't really think I'm wrong about this. So, um, Luckily, in graduate school, I had a, I had an advisor who was um, not a stickler for those kinds of things. She was a real a real excellent field biologist, and to her, um, things like intentionality and awareness and uh, you know responding appropriately for appropriate reasons were were not they were not issues for her. Um, if if an animal got frightened and ran away, you know, she didn't hesitate to say the animal was frightened. Whereas if, if you had the taboo in mind, the only thing you were allowed to say is the animal increased the distance between itself and the stimulus. Uh, you know, but we, we, we were not afraid to say that uh, the animal got scared and ran away. Right. So, so has some of the change come about because of advances in sort of neuroscience and yes, sort of the ability absolutely. to map, map our brains? Neuro, neuroscience and field science both are completely, completely different than they were 60 years ago when people first said, okay, we're going to take animal behavior from um, a bunch of old tales and fables and mythology and we're going to make a science out of it. So we're going to wipe the slate. And those people were really quite brilliant. But since then, we've had um, many thousands of people go into the field to study animals in the wild. And uh, we've learned uh, almost everything we really know about how the brain works, not, not simply what it looks like when you slice it open, but how it works. We've learned, uh, you know, in about the last, 50 or 60 years or so. And men, many of the people, the, the, the science of studying wild animals is very new. Most of the people who have ever studied wild animals, um, you know, in any major way, they're, they're still working. You know, Jane Goodall is still working and Ian Douglas Hamilton, who started, who was the first person to study elephants without killing them, um, is still working and George Schaller is still working. And, uh, you know, some of these early pioneers, they're, they're around. I, I've met them. So, so it's new, you know, it's not, it's not a thing that we have centuries of history, um, thinking that way. Right. So I'd like to talk about the elephants <laughs> and, um, just you know, can you tell us like how you decided to to go to this particular reserve and and what you found there? Yeah, well, I I decided I went to two reserves actually, Amboseli and Samburu, 
Um, most of the material in the book comes from Ambicelli, and some of it comes from Samburu. And I, I went there because the most knowledgeable people were there, and the populations were completely protected legally, although not in fact. And um, I, I wanted to go to protected populations because I wanted to see just what they are like when they're just being themselves and when they don't have to deal with people too much. Um, unfortunately, what I found was that they had to deal with people a lot and that people were exerting mortal pressure on them all the time. We had this truly horrific, nightmarish poaching crisis right now, and it was, it was absolutely at the height of how it was raging when I was there and in Samburu they were they were losing an elephant a day to poachers every day another elephant was killed and uh, that population there I think at that time was about 600 elephants um, it was very very disturbing to say the least to go to a place where you think it's as protected as anywhere in the world and find out that they're just being shot every night. And, you know, I had known about the, the poaching crisis intellectually and seen statistics, but after uh, Beyond Words, it, it became very personal. So, you know, knowing that... that Echo and Enid and Tim were, were, as you say, were who's, not what's. Yeah. Um, tell us a, a story about an elephant that uh, that folks who are listening can can maybe get a, a glimpse of that before they before they rush out and, and get their own copy. Uh, well, of course, I'd rather that they rush out and get their own copy before we're even done with this interview. But <laughs> um, right. Well, that's well, that's there, what we're there, doing here. Right? There are there are many there are many stories. Um, I think the, the, the most famous of those elephants is probably Echo because she was pretty extraordinary and her family was filmed by the BBC at a particularly um, interesting and amazing time. Um, and you can, you can look her up online and you can, you know, you can see lots of lots of uh, fragments of this documentary or watch the whole documentary, which is called echo of the elephants and see that she was, she was known as a very, a very wise leader of her family. Elephants live in these family groups where all the females stay together for their entire lives. They never leave their mother and they never leave their sisters. The males do leave when they get to be adolescent. Um, but the females stay together and echo was, very level and um, uh, very smart about things. She guided them through and around different crises, such as droughts and things like that. And at one point in the uh, in the documentary and in her life, but the, the amazing thing is that this actually was recorded on film, she gave birth to a baby that could not uh, straighten out his front legs. And he could not stand up which meant uh, he couldn't really 
reach uh, her nipples to nurse, and he couldn't walk. And they're, they're supposed to stand up more or less right away, nurse, and follow the family around while the family is foraging. And the uh, the people in the park, the officials, they have they have a policy about not interfering and not killing animals. But they were considering making an exception because this baby seemed to be really suffering and struggling, and um, they they thought that with him trying to hobble around, basically to hobble around on the backs of his wrists, uh, he would soon develop sores and infections and and die a, a miserable miserable death. But instead, what happened was. They did not interfere, and Echo and her entire family constantly waited for him, and they would take a few steps, and they would wait for him to catch up, and she would kneel down so he could nurse. And they, in you know, in a sense, they sort of kept the faith there with him. Uh, they certainly adjusted everything about themselves to try to let him survive and keep him alive. And... Uh, in in not too terribly long, I, f- I forget how many days it was, but it it, it wasn't weeks. Um, he started to straighten out the front legs a bit, and then um, he sort of he sort of in a way figured out that if he could get his front feet flat on the ground, even though his legs were bent, if he could get the front feet flat on the ground and raise the back of his body, it would kind of force his legs to straighten out. And that's what he did one day. And that was when he started walking more or less normally. And then he became okay. Right. And there's, there's so much in, in there um, to, to unpack, but part, part of it is, you know, you write that uh, elephants have to learn how to be elephants and right, right. it sounds like this, you know, this young fella had was like figured it out maybe by observing. I mean, we, we can't know. Right. But maybe by looking at everyone else the same way a baby elephant would would t- take its trunk into some another elephant's mouth. Like, what are you eating? Is this good? Is this safe? It, it kind of by there's a natural curiosity and mimicry. That, well, that maybe. Talk. I mean, he may, he may have seen, you know, he may have seen how he was supposed to be walking. He may have somehow understood that they, they are very intelligent in a lot of ways. They're extremely social. They pay a lot of attention to one another and um, they they have to be taught what is good to eat. As you alluded to, they often learn that by putting their trunk in their mother's mouth and then they get they get a sniff and they get a taste. And of course, they see what the mother is eating. And uh, the other thing is that they don't know what's dangerous. They have to be taught to fear lions, for instance. So the the learning process is is long. It's comparable to being a human. They they start maturing when they're about twelve years old, and the males don't start breeding until they're about thirty years old. So um, they live they live complicated lives with. Uh, Lots of family around and other other families of elephants that some of whom they know very well and others they know less well, but they know who is supposed to be around. And if uh, here's a here's an example of a, a good insightful experiment. Scientists 
recorded the voices of elephants of very different families in an area. And then they went hundreds of miles away and they recorded the sounds of elephants there. And when they played back the families from the local area, the, the local elephants they were playing those back to didn't do much, didn't respond much. But when they played the ones from hundreds of miles away, they immediately snapped to attention um, because they they knew instantly that these were strange elephants. They didn't know who this was. So that's an example of a very good experiment. I think that really teaches a lot. Right. That, that, that humans can go, I can go in to, for a safari and spend a couple of days there or just sort of you know, glance you know, in the, out of the side of my consciousness and just apply a single label to all of them. Oh, they're, they're elephants. Because I can't tell them apart and because I can't understand them, then they're interchangeable and unintelligible or, or, or not. They don't have anything to say. Yeah. And yet, when, yeah. you know, um, when, when you talk yes, that's about... that's true. The, I, one of the problems that we have is, um, you know, part of our genius is that we have labels for everything. But, but part of the weakness of our intellect is that we have labels for everything. And we think that the label is the same thing as knowing what it is. And those two things are extremely different. So Cynthia Moss, the main researcher who I went to visit, she said that it took her 20 years to start to feel like she was understanding how the elephants were cueing on each other and who they were taking, uh, you know, when, when a cue was being given and what the cue was and what they were really doing. It, you don't get that in a couple of days. It takes a couple of decades to get that. Right, and so if someone goes there and spends a week or a month and doesn't see it, they they can just say, "Well, you know, you're you're making it up." Well, like, they, I mean, they probably wouldn't even think that that far about it. They'd probably say, "We we went and saw elephants, and it was great." But um, you know, as far as really seeing who they are and how they live, you wouldn't be able to just get that yourself. My way of cheating is I I go I go with somebody who's been doing it for forty years, and I spend a month sitting with them, watching the elephants. And before I get there, I've, I've read uh, 700 pages of research from the 40 years of that study, and I'm pretty prepped when I arrive, and then I start learning everything. So that's, that's my way of cheating. Uh, but compared to just going for a couple of days, uh, you know, it's, um, it's a different experience, and I, I'm, I'm very, very lucky that I can do things like that. Right. I mean, what, one of the things that really struck me was when you, you gave us the thought experiment about imagining a researcher from another planet trying to describe human communication. Um, I, t- I took it farther in, in, in my terror-addled brain. I think I've been watching too much Black Mirror, and I imagined them coming down and trying to decide if we were, if we were sentient, if we were ethical. <laughs> Right and and you know, the just, they couldn't they the couldn't answer, understand please. our language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. You know that that I I would certainly not want to be treated intellectually the way we treat animals that we don't understand. No, you wouldn't. That's true. Um, That's certainly true. So, um, and also uh, related to the story of Echo, um, one of the things I learned from Beyond Words is the the damage that can be done to an entire elephant 
grouping or society when a long-lived matriarch is killed. So just, you know, when I think about um, death in a, in a very sort of actuarial way, I think, well, you know, the, it's okay. The older ones are, are, gonna, are dying, um, you know, because they have the least life left in them. But that's not how the calculus works with elephants, is it? No, it's, it's the, the way the calculus works with them is a lot like it works in your family. They, they really mean a lot to one another, and they, they basically live by following the older one who, is, who has the store of all the wisdom and the experience that she's had in a much longer life than all the other ones in her family. So, uh, yeah, many people do think of it in an actuarial way where it's just numbers. It's just like counting marbles, but it's not that way to them. If their, if their mother gets killed, their mother has been killed and they are at a loss because not everybody is as knowledgeable quite simply about what to do. And some of them are not really cut out to lead. And in, in the case of Echo's family, um, Echo died of old age, um, hastened by a drought, but um, her oldest daughter, who should have succeeded her, did not inspire the confidence of the other daughters, and they didn't follow her. So that family started to fragment um, a, a, a much worse fragmentation is in the section on the wolves in the book, mm-hmm. where the breeding female of that family gets killed and the whole family starts to completely fall apart and the siblings begin fighting with one another. The the father is, um, the father is routed from his own territory by uh, other wolves that come in as suitors to his daughters. Um, You know, it's a lot of stuff that you might see in, in a human family when a catastrophe like that happens and it rearranges the trajectory of the lives of all the children. But, um, we never, we almost never think about anything like that for any non-humans. And I'm not saying that this happens to every other species, uh, but there are a few that are very social and the individuals are very important to one another. Um, and those are the fa- those are the kinds of species that I chose to focus on. So, elephants and wolves and certain kinds of whales, like the orcas that I wrote about, they really exemplify that. And there are there are others that I didn't really focus on. Some of the right. apes, for instance. Yeah, and I did I did feel like you know the the stories were tugging at my heartstrings that I don't you know I don't necessarily see the world or smell the world or hear the world the way these other creatures do. But the emotional apparatus that we share allowed me at least to believe that I was, you know, I was witnessing, I was in the presence of, of souls that were enduring and, and suffering joys and and triumphs and, and, and all of life. It, you know, when I, like well, I, I think the key, the, yeah, I think the key there is one thing that you said: the the emotional apparatus that we share. The key is that yes, we 
we do share a, a fair amount, a considerable amount of social uh, of social and emotional apparatus with some of the other species that uh, are here on the planet with us. That I that I think is really the key point, you know, and it's it's one of the main things that I was trying to show. Right. So let's let's move on to wolves because those those stories. I think there was sort of more sort of individual. It was more like you know Game of Thrones or, or Dallas or something that you know that could that could really be a uh, a gripping narrative. Maybe start by talking about the wolf called Twenty One. Yeah. Well, Twenty One. The, the wolves are named in in Yellowstone. They simply refer to the wolves by the number of their collar. Uh, many many of them, not all of them, are wearing collars that are put on by researchers and um, 21 was one of the first pups to be born in Yellowstone after um, after 60 years of absence because the the park had exterminated all the wolves and, and all the rest of the wolves south of Canada had been exterminated by everybody else so in the 90s they brought a couple of dozen wolves in from Canada to try to reestablish them after 20 years of vicious political fighting about whether to do this or not. And he was one of the first pups to be born there. His father was shot almost immediately. And uh, he always, from a young age, seemed to show that he was a very precocious, uh, sort of talented little wolf. He um, he um, he just sort of always assumed a, a wolf-type leadership qualities, even within his own family. He was often first to do different things and um, always seemed bolder. And he went on to have uh, a pretty incredible career. He was called the Super Wolf by the researchers who were watching him every day. And uh, he distinguished himself in two major ways. One is that he never lost a fight with another wolf and wolves, unlike elephants, which almost never fight, wolves do fight over territory. And, um, he had a lot of, a lot of fights in his life, but he never lost a fight. And also unlike almost any other wolf. In fact, I, I, I never heard this about any other wolf. He never killed a wolf that he had beaten in a fight. He always let them get up and go away. So both of those things are very, very unusual, probably completely unique. And uh, he came he came into the world at a time when, because he was new in Yellowstone, or, or when the wolves were new, um, the elk and the deer populations had become extremely large and extremely dense and uh, were really out of balance. But that meant that the wolves had a lot of food, and that meant that there were many, many wolves there for a few years. And so his... His um, his family, which we call a pack, but it's really a family of uh, usually one one mom and dad, and then their children of two or three years, and then when the children start maturing, they leave the family, just like in a human family. They just they they live in um, um, uh, you know a nuclear family, as we call it with humans. That's what a wolf pack is. Uh, but his his got exceptionally large. It got to be almost thirty individuals, and yet he had you know he had what it took to keep all of that organized for for quite a while. 
actually. And then he also died of natural causes. Right. And, you know, when you, you wrote about his, his leadership abilities, it wasn't just tough guy, right? No, it was, it was, that's, it was a, uh, yeah, that's one of the main misconceptions that people have about wolves. Cause we have, we have this weird thing where we call people alpha males and that is taken from the lexicon of how people used to talk about wolves, how researchers used to talk about wolves. They don't talk about them too much like that anymore because they understand now that there's simply a breeder who is a male and a breeder who's a female, and those two are mates. And the reason that they are the, the leaders is that they, they're the mom and dad, and all the other ones look up to them. But um, our impression of an alpha male human is a tough guy, somebody who's always bossing everybody around snarling about everything and gets his way by bullying. But in, uh, in an actual wolf family, that doesn't happen because if you're constantly bullying and fighting with your children, you're, you're not going to have much of a, a family. And if you don't have much of a family, you're not going to have much of a hunting unit and then you won't do very well. So wolves depend on being together and cooperating and they are, uh, they're very nice to one another. They're like, they're like dogs are in, in our own families because dogs are descendants of wolves and what they show us is what they show is what wolves show one another. They're, they're friendly, they're cooperative, they're supportive. And the alpha male, um, who is, as I say, the, the breeding male, uh, is is someone who just leads by example. And, and often, especially in the case of this Super Wolf 21 who never lost a fight, he loved to just play with his pups. And when he played with his pups, he liked to make believe that he lost. So he would like roll over on his back and the pups would swarm all over him and jump at him and bite his fur and, and that kind of thing. He He didn't need to show his pups who was boss. He didn't need to beat them when they were play fighting. He didn't need to do any of that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's only, it seems to be only maladjusted human males who need to do that kind of stuff. I, 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 what is that movie where there's a fantastic scene on the basketball court? Is that the great Santini or is, uh, I can't remember the, quite the name of that movie, but that, that really shows a, a, a human father who, who has to beat his son and, uh, and how dysfunctional that is and how, how damaging it is to the son that he's that way. And, and wolves are not that way. Mm. And, and, and you write um, that one of the wolves, the 21 allowed to live, I think it was Casanova. Um, yeah. Was he, he sounded like a real jerk. <laughs> like I, I, I would have had sympathy for 21 uh, uh, had he decided to, to end Casanova's life. But it, it turns out that through the you know the daily um, observations by the by the the wolf researchers that you you spent time with, they discovered that Casanova later played a role in in saving a considerable number of twenty one's offspring. Yes. Yeah, so another another thing about most animals, and and this is very illustrated by the wolves, is that you would think that they're all like, like I said, they're all just marbles. They're all the same and they all like to do the same thing. They all, they all act the same. A wolf is like an animal who just hunts and fights, but 
some wolves don't like hunting that much, and they prefer to guard the young ones. They they don't they don't really like to go hunting very much, and most male wolves want to lead a family and have a mate. And this this wolf Casanova was what his name implied. That's why he was named that. He he was what you would call in a human very irresponsible. He was um, constantly looking for opportunities to sneak matings with female wolves, um, sort of outside the rules of wolf society. And he was to not only female wolves, but but, um, humans as well, an unusually attractive looking wolf. And um, he was constantly a thorn in the side of 21. But later in life, as you um, as you alluded to, he he kind of straightened out, shaped up, and took on the role of um, of the um, the lead male in a, in his own pack. Um, and the other thing that had characterized him early in life was he he would often uh, he was a very bad fighter, and um, in this um, in later life. He he became um, he became the opposite. He became a very responsible kind of you know. He really cared for the family, and he in part of his family were the direct descendants of twenty one, some of twenty one's grandchildren. And in one big fight that erupted with another pack of wolves, Casanova um, uh, he, he well he fought to the death. And it, that allowed the escape of the whole rest of his family. So this wolf that 21 could have killed but didn't kill eventually is the reason that um, a number of 21's grandchildren survived. So um, like I said in the book, you know, there are lots of plot twists that nobody can see coming in their lives. Mm-hmm. So the the wolves in in Yellowstone, they were you know welcomed back. Uh, I think there's there's a, some really interesting documentaries on how Yellowstone has changed for the better, from, you know, from all of the the cascading effects of returning the apex predator. But there, it's not a a happy story, right? There's there's been gutting of um, endangered species protections for the wolf. And yeah. the way you, you know the way you wrote about some of the, the way people on the internet and people that people met in bars talked about the wolves, it just it seemed so viciously racist. And you wrote, it, to, "It's a it's a kind of, it's a kind of hatred that feels like racial hatred to me. It's um, it's irrational. It has nothing to do with how the wolves really are or what the wolves really do. It." It's um, it gets wrapped up in political ideology. There, uh, you know, there there were people complaining about these are Obama's wolves, these are the liberals' wolves, um, and all this kind of stuff that is really kooky, but it's it's very dangerous also, and it is in ascendancy now, like a lot of kooky, dangerous stuff is, and so many of the protections of these species that were very hard one over many years are getting uh, are just getting the the legs knocked out from under them and uh, uh, a lot of wolves are getting shot 
uh, a, a lot of terrible things are happening with regard to the environment and protections for wildlife right now. Um, I find it rather heartbreaking, actually. Yeah, and I think you know, it's, it's, we're, we're almost to the point of, of, of wrapping up the uh, the very generous amount of time you've given me. And, but I, I, you know, the the tagline on your website includes the words inspiration and hope. And yeah. I was wondering <laughs> where you are, because like my my basic response to the book was um, was one of of grief of when and you write you know in terms of the elephants that grief is a response to loss. And yeah. it's like you, you showed me these worlds. You showed me these beautiful individuals, you know, against whom I did measure myself and came up short time after time. And in the stories of, of the way humans are, are being in the world, it's, you know, there's these, these creatures and these civilizations of non-us are, are slipping away. And I'm wondering, do, is, there, is there hope and inspiration right now? Yeah, well, you know, um, first of all, I, I think it, I think it's important to acknowledge that there is grief, and um, many people who work on these things feel this way. There's a lot of frustration, a lot of anger, but the point is that nothing, nothing has ever been done by people who shrank away from the challenges, and uh, the entire environmental movement, the entire conservation movement has always been done against the odds and it made a tremendous amount of progress. And, and right now it's, um, it is in, uh, it is in retreat, but there all of the colleagues that I know who are working on these things are all still working on these things. It's not a happy time to be working on them, but it's, it's a much more important time to be working on them than, than when everybody on our side is winning. So, um, I think that my definition of hope is the ability to see how things can be better. If you can't see how they can be better, I don't think you can have hope. And inspiration to me is the urge to act. So you can have hope and you can be inspired even in times that are not the happiest times. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. And, um, uh, you know, in addition, the animals themselves are very inspiring because they're very, very worth it. They they need their um, they need their advocates. They need their human advocates nowadays, and um, and they're really, really well worth it. Mm. Um, yeah. So one, I mean, when when I uh, I gifted this book to my martial arts instructor, I told him, you know, P.S. Middle of page one fifty three. And what I got from there was uh, Doug Smith, one of the, the wolf researchers, who, who said, wolves never feel sorry for themselves. It's never poor me. They're always forward. Their next question is always next. And I thought, wow, that's, that's kind of us, you know, who care about animals and who care about right. the world I mean, and who it, care it, about humans. Isn't that a great way to let the wolves themselves inspire us to be better? Yeah, because it's so easy to feel sorry for for ourselves in these, in these crazy times and seeing, you know, so there's, there's so much about the world that, you know, a terrible administration can do, but we can recover from, but it seems like there's things going on now that it's, we're, we're sort of taking a last stand. Well, I, I, I don't, I don't think the last stand analysis is right for most things. Um, I mean, what I told our daughter 
when the uh, the election catastrophe happened and she was extremely upset, I, I said, well, let me let me try to tell you two things from my longer experience. One is that bad presidents do do bad things and they are harmful, but then we get somebody else and things change. And in the middle of that, we can also try to make as much change as we can try to make. So, um, you know, it may seem black and it may seem bleak, but there's a longer game. Right. And, uh, you know, you write, you know, people can change, but is there enough time? Right. So Mm -hmm. I think maybe you just answered the question. It's like, it's not a, the second question isn't a question that we have the luxury of even thinking about. We just need to, to roll up our sleeves and do. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, if, if you're on a, if you're on a sports team and you're losing the game, you don't just stop playing. You, you know, you try to win until the end. So, um, that's how I see it anyway. Right. Um, so one, one last set of questions in addition to, to buying, Beyond Words and uh, and checking out all all of your other work, um, are there organizations that you think people should get involved with? Should uh, should donate money to? How can the person who's not professionally involved in this wor- work get like get started? Yeah, well, I I do think that the best way to be involved for people who don't have much time or you know not not going to do it professionally is to support some groups that they, whose work they like in, in the end of the book, I listed some of the groups that, uh, that were involved directly in the work that I was, um, writing about, or at least, you know, trying to conserve the animals I was writing about the, uh, the Yellowstone foundation, the center for whale research, save the elephants, the Ambicelli trust. I listed them in there, but there, there are many, many groups. Um, I mean, I myself give give uh, end of the year contributions to probably 20 groups, and there are hundreds. So it, it depends on what you like. Some people like the really big national groups. Some people like the smaller local groups. Uh, it's easier to get involved personally with smaller local groups sometimes. So um, there there are there are a few really good ones. I, I, I like the Natural Resources Defense Council. I like the Center for Biological Diversity. Uh, the other groups that I mentioned, and as I said, there are there are lots lots of other groups that are, everybody's got in their local area. They've got some people who are trying to do what you would like to see done. So they're all they all need support, and they're all worth supporting. Great. Okay, and I'll I'll list a few of those in the show notes, and of course a link to to get the book. Um, where can people find out more about you on the web? Uh, on the web, it's either carlsafina.org or thesafinacenter.org. That's my not-for-profit group. And um, I, I, I write various things that are sprinkled over in various places. I, I write on um, the National Geographic blog site. I write at, um, at Medium. That's another blog. I, um, I occasionally write in the New York Times and a few other things. So there are CNN.com is another one. Um, there, there, you know, I'm, I'm around, I'm easy to locate. Great. So I hope everyone, uh, 
who's, who's listening will we'll, we'll check you out. We'll check out the, uh, the resources that we talked about and, and get a copy of, of, of this book. It's, it's a, you know, it's, it's a love story to, to a world that we can still protect and still have around for our children. So, uh, Carl, it was, I was so happy when I got your email saying you agreed to this interview and I'm, I'm just so touched by your work and, and so thrilled to have had this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Well, I, I'm, I'm absolutely honored and it's been a delightful conversation and I, I, I really, uh, I really thank you for including me in it. All right. Well, be well. Go to, from strength to strength. And, uh, yes. Let's, let's do it for the animals. Okay. Sounds great. Thank you very okay. much. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. It really helps our mission to reach more people. For more information about the Big Change Program, led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 256. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 255 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com, where you can also sign up for my weekly-ish newsletter, The Big Change Bulldog. Other ways to support the show include sharing this and other episodes on social media and becoming a patron of the show with an ongoing contribution. And you can do that over at plantyourself.com. Just click on the Patreon link on the right, or you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash plantyourself. You can check out the different statuses. And when you do that, you also get access to three healthy habit huddles every single month just for patrons. In garden news, I hauled about 25 cartloads of wood chips from the front into the back garden, where I covered up not just the paths, but also the beds themselves with about three to five inches of pretty well-seasoned wood chips, about nine to 12 months old. And the principle is I'm going to take out little divots of wood chips, replace it with some really good soil, and then plant seeds directly into that soil. So instead of needing huge amounts of topsoil or compost, I can just get by with a bag or two of happy frog, put that into the wood chips, and then grow from that medium. And over time, of course, the wood chips will break down more and more. The three to six inches of mulch keeps down weeds and holds moisture And so we're trying this new method. We did it last year just with beans. We had a really nice bean harvest. So for this spring, summer, and fall, we're going to try to plant in three to six inches of wood chips with a little bit of soil just around each seed. I'm very excited to see how that works. In running news, not that much going on. I'm preparing for my marathon next month, and I'm I'm back up to about 25 miles a week. Still a little tweaky, but getting better, and I look forward to finding a fun, challenging ultra race in the fall. I think something with some uh, technical trails and elevation to uh, keep me motivated throughout the summer. All right, time to get gratitudinous. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use Stabali Don, the Dance of Peace, as this podcast's theme music. Check out willridenauer.com for more of his stuff. If you like it, why not make a purchase? That will make me feel better about using his music for all these episodes. And thanks to all you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Let's do it. 
Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hathaway, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolo, Lenova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Bedham, Gil, Sarah David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Thunderbrook, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Alicia Lemons, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rise with Cinnamon. Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, New Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, Inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Dean Norton, Ronnie Lynch of Plant Happy Oregon, Sabine Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Coble, Shell Rudless, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Fishman, Kate Rolls, Linda Ayat, Julie Langholm, Hedda Gardiza, Tuzin Watt, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lyle, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen, and Joe Crabby, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin, 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 I can almost, Kevin McCauley, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends.